Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Our theme today is Land, Air, and Sea. And over the course of the next hour, we'll bring you stories about the nation's most famous lawn. We have more visitors than the Yosemite Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon combined, so it is the most visited park in the country. And we'll talk with a scientist exploring the great unknown on the ocean floor. You see this surface, often angry and, and rough, but what goes on underneath is really is still largely a mystery. We'll also revisit a Potomac River disaster that's mostly been forgotten to history. And we'll meet people who walk on the wings of moving airplanes just for the thrill of it. I think she tried to talk her out of it, but there's not much we can do. <laughs> But first, we're going to take a bit of a road trip to Charleston, West Virginia, for a story about something many of us take for granted, clean water flowing from the tap whenever we need it. Five months ago, residents in Charleston learned exactly how much they depend on clean water after a leaky storage tank at a coal processing facility along the Elk River caused an estimated 10,000 gallons of MCHM, methylcyclohexane methanol, to enter the water supply. The leak left 300,000 people without safe water for several days and has been called one of the most serious water contaminations in our country's history. The local utility declared the water safe to use and drink months ago, but there are still many questions surrounding the spill and its aftermath. And so I made the trip out to Charleston this week to take the pulse of the community. And in West Virginia's capital city, there's no better place to start than Capitol Street. It runs through Charleston's historic shopping and dining district. And while not exactly bustling, if you're looking for people to talk to, strolling past the turn-of-the-century shop fronts along Capitol Street on a weekday lunch hour isn't a bad bet. It's, I think things are starting to return back to normal, but everybody's got this stigma. It's still in common. People are still talking about it. That's Charleston resident John Ingram. He's a musician and a waiter and says, yes, most people who come to his restaurant still ask for bottled and not tap water. Carlotta G. is one of those people whose bottled water consumption has skyrocketed. I don't mind taking the shower. I will not drink the water. I don't cook in it. I don't make coffee with it. Well, wait a minute. I think my husband has made coffee a few times with it, but uh, pretty much we drink bottled water. In my hotel room, among the first things I do is turn on the faucet to check for the distinct licorice smell associated with MCHM. One resident told me it smelled more specifically like the licorice candy Good and Plenty. The water looks crystal clear and smells, well, it doesn't smell at all. I also turn on the shower. But, confession time, I never take one during my short time in Charleston, and I never drink tap water either. This is the filter wing. Our plant is basically divided in half. There are few people who've had to think and talk more about the state of the water in Charleston and greater Kanawha County than Laura Jordan the spokesperson for West Virginia American Water, the local water utility. We meet in West Virginia American's main filtration plant, where a series of large rectangular pools of nearly still water flank us on either side. So right now it doesn't look like much is happening, right. but you're telling me there's a lot happening? Yes, yes. Each of these filters can move more than 2.5 million gallons of water through them each day. The filters use activated granular carbon, and Jordan says they're just about the last step in the filtration process. The carbon absorbs the last remaining unwanted chemicals from the water before it gets pumped out to customers, much like a giant Brita filter. 
Jordan takes me across the hall into an identical room that is much noisier. Crews are vacuuming out and replacing the activated carbon in all of the utility's filters. She says even though West Virginia American is confident that all the MCHM has been flushed from the system, they want to go the extra mile to rebuild customer trust. Just to give customers that extra feeling of uh, knowing that we have done everything that we committed to doing in our response efforts. So what you see in this room here is the last of the two, the last two of 16 filters having the activated carbon changed out. It's a very physical process. It takes about a week to do two. The filter project may be the perfect example of an ongoing challenge for West Virginia American Water, even five months after the Elk River contamination. As hard as the utility has worked to flush all traces of MCHM from the system, the work of rebuilding local trust in the water supply is likely to linger for a long time to come. It's a task that falls almost completely on West Virginia American Water. The company responsible for the spill, Freedom Industries, has essentially vanished. I tried and failed to get any representative for the company to comment for this story, but local media reports show that Freedom executives have already formed a new chemical company called Lexicon. They immediately filed from bankruptcy and essentially abandoned the community. And so our company has been the one that's here every day communicating with customers um, and trying to get you know, confidence restored and, and ensuring that water quality was restored. That fact has allowed the water utility to build goodwill, but there are still questions about how it handled the crisis, including questions that will be posed by the state's Public Service Commission. The commission has initiated a general investigation. That's Susan Small, communication director for the commission. She says the commission has the responsibility to look into a specific area. Did the actions of West Virginia American Water Company in reacting to the spill and the presence of MCHM in the water supply constitute unreasonable or inadequate practices under state law. And then there are the health questions. Kanawha County Health Department Director Dr. Raul Gupta was unavailable for a recorded interview, but he tells me residents deserve a long-term medical monitoring program, a program for which his department currently lacks manpower or funding. Little is known about the health effects of MCHM other than the reports of nausea, rashes, and diarrhea from those exposed. But Gupta tells me his department knows that one in four people in the affected area failed to follow the do not use order during the crisis. And 37 percent of those people actually ingested the contaminated water. At the state level, West Virginia lawmakers passed new regulations about the inspection of above ground chemical storage tanks following the disaster. Charleston resident and executive director of People Concerned About Chemical Safety, Maya Nye, says the new laws just scratch the surface of the problems. I do think that they are important, and I do want to recognize that. But I don't think that, um, you know, it's still going to allow the stockpiling of mass amounts of chemicals. And I think that until we reduce those vulnerabilities, communities will continue to be at risk. Nye and her organization are trying to keep the public's attention focused on those risks. But the passage of time can work against them. I think that that many more people are aware, but I think the fact that you can no longer smell the chemical in the water, I mean, it just, it goes away. People people resume their their normal lives if you don't have to smell it or live with it on a daily basis or that, that, um, you know, that that reminder. So, um, So hopefully lessons have been learned. And of course, it's not just people in West Virginia trying to learn from the Elk River disaster. 
D.C.'s own Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments sent emissaries to the area back in January as soon as the news hit. Lisa Reagan, a principal at water quality consulting firm Aquavite, was part of that team. And she says the biggest lesson she brought home had little to do with the exact effects of methylcyclohexane methanol. There is a potential, and there's actually a large potential, for whatever contaminant is in your water may not be known. If you don't know about it, what's next? How do you get your water system back up and running, and how do you make it safe and reliable for your community? Back on Charleston's Capitol Street, Carlotta G. says the fact the disaster affected drinking water, something so elemental to our very existence, might actually make it easier for everyone to wash away the memory of what happened at Elk River. A lot of people are just going to go back to just the way it used to be and not think about it just because it's water. That's in that's a big, huge part of life. I think just like a lot of catastrophes and hard things, people just kind of settle and choose to forget. You can find out much more about the Elk River contamination and the ongoing efforts to identify and quantify the effects of the spill on our website. There you can find links to the ongoing West Virginia Testing Assessment Project, or West Virginia TAP, as well as the CDC's official analysis of the Elk River spill. It's all at metroconnection.org. We'll return to D.C. now and head to the place long known as America's Front Yard, the National Mall. For a long time, that front yard has looked a bit wild and unkempt, with weeds sprouting where grass once grew. But over the past few years, the overseers of the National Mall, including the National Park Service, the Smithsonian, and the American Battle Monuments Commission, among many others, have set about restoring the turf to its former glory. About a third of the work is already finished, and the next round of restoration begins in August. But as Lauren Ober reports, the new turf is raising issues that may change how the mall is used in the future. It's a sunny Sunday, and Dayal Bright is playing kickball in the National Mall. The grass underfoot is a plush carpet of green. But, Bright says, the turf's not as forgiving as it looks. I fell on it last week, and I I hit my shoulder. I guess the, the ground was hard that day. I don't know. The ground may have been hard, but at least Bright landed on actual grass. Before the National Park Service installed new panels of turf between 3rd and 7th Streets, most of the National Mall looked like a mess. It was sort of a dust bowl with huge sandy patches in the middle of a sea of weeds. There is no turf. There is no grass. It's weeds. That's Bob Vogel, the National Park Service's mall superintendent. If there's anything green at all, it's weeds, and it's so heavily compacted that that nothing could possibly grow on it. The architect of the federal city, Major Pierre L'Enfant, looked at the mall as a place of general resort that would represent the grand experiment of We the People. But weeds and sand don't exactly represent the majesty of American democracy. So for the first time in 40 years, the mall is getting a facelift. We're in the process of, over time, restoring all of the turf panels in this nationally significant cultural landscape of the mall. And this first panel was um, put in just in time for President Obama's second inauguration. By 2018, the 1.2 miles of grass between the U.S. Capitol and the Washington Monument will have been replaced. 
The second phase of the restoration between 12th and 7th Streets is set to begin in August. To understand how bad things got on the mall before the makeover began, here's a number for you. $425 million. That's the amount of deferred mall maintenance that has accrued over the years, says Caroline Cunningham. She's the president of the Trust for the National Mall, the nonprofit partner of the National Park Service. The entire park has been neglected, and the Park Service, frankly, has done the best they can do with the amount of funds that they receive, but they don't have enough funding to take care of this entire park. Cunningham points to specific problems that have persisted over the years. Cracked sidewalks, dying trees, dead fish, and of course, the state of the actual grass. One of the reasons for the deterioration is that there's nobody tasked with representing them all in Congress. It's not represented in Congress. Eleanor Holmes Norton is a great, great advocate for it, but she doesn't have a vote in Congress. So uh, it was neglected for about 40 years and was falling apart. Some advocates like Judy Scott Feldman see the issue as too much representation. Feldman is with the National Coalition to Save Our Mall. By her count, there are at least 17 agencies managing some aspect of the mall. And that's not including congressional committees. Okay, in the House, we have appropriations, government reform, judiciary, transportation and infrastructure, natural resources, House administration. So from Feldman's perspective, it's an issue of too many cooks in the kitchen. There's no cohesive plan for them all because there's no one agency or entity in charge of it. The Environmental Protection Agency, the D.C. Mayor, the D.C. Office of Planning, and the D.C. Historic Preservation Office. This is who's in charge of the National Mall. So it's easy to see how the mall sort of tumbled from glory. That's why we believe, and we've been saying now for 15 years, we need a new commission, not the Park Service, not the Smithsonian, not the Capitol, not just government agencies. We need a commission of visionary thinkers, members of the public, and scientists that can think not only about the mall as it historically has been, but what the needs are now. When Feldman talks about a commission, she's referring to the Macmillan Commission, which more than a century ago created a comprehensive plan for the development of the city's ceremonial core. Since then, agencies like the National Capital Planning Commission and the National Park Service have built upon that document for the 21st century. Those updates have led to the restoration and improvements that are happening now. But not everyone is happy with the changes. New turf on the mall means new measures to protect it. And that can be expensive for organizations holding events there. In January, the Library of Congress announced it was moving its annual book fair from the National Mall to the Walter E. Washington Convention Center because of the cost of complying with new regulations. Again, Judy Scott Feldman. Are we going to restrict the meaning of the mall now because the grass is more important? Of course not. All people should be willing to say, on the one hand, we want to protect the landscape, but on the other hand, we must protect the meaning of the mall as our public gathering space. And protecting our public gathering space means making some changes to how the mall is used. In the future, efforts will be made to move tents for big events to hard ground and limit the amount of time they can be up. For presidential inaugurations, the Park Service will shield the turf with a protective covering. And the agency is working with local sports leagues to rotate which panels they play on to give the grass a rest. Again, Bob Vogel. The the care of this stretch of turf is so important to all of us as Americans because it symbolizes all that America is. So it's much more than just the Park Service keeping the grass green. It's really preserving this iconic landscape, which is 
certainly one of the most significant landscapes in the world. And that means there's room for everyone on the National Mall, from protesters to kickball players. But just maybe leave your cleats at home. I'm Lauren Ober. After the break, remembering a disaster on the Potomac 170 years later. It is, in fact, this horrible sort of rupturing sound and an elongated explosion. That's just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is land, air, and sea, and our next story takes place on the ground, though it involves a few characters that are usually airborne. It's the first part in a special Metro Connection Animal House collaboration in which we'll be shadowing the animal control officers of the Washington Humane Society. They're the people who respond when there's an injured, ill, or neglected animal in the city in need of help. And this time of year is a busy season for them, with lots of calls about wildlife, especially birds. Lauren Landau grabbed her microphone and jumped in the animal control van to bring us this story. It's dark outside when Raymond Knoll, director of the Washington Humane Society's Animal Control Field Services, arrives at his destination in southeast D.C. Arriving at address 3405. He's here for an injured bird that his dispatcher says is probably a fledgling, a bird that has most likely fallen out of its nest or been placed on the ground by its mother. In April, WHS took in nine non-migratory birds, such as European starlings, house sparrows, and pigeons. In May, that number jumped to 66. Hi. Hi there. Up, down, uh, around, around. Okay. I'll, I'll show you. The resident walks us around to the back of the house, where he shows us a baby sparrow lying in the grass. High above our heads and out of reach, we see a nest wedged in the wooden beams of the second-story balcony. So, let me ask you a question. Do you have a problem with me picking that bird up, going through your house, reaching around, sticking it back in the nest? Because you can't move the nest. Yeah. I mean, short of that, this thing's in rough shape anyway. The resident doesn't want us going through his house, but Ray quickly realizes it would be a pointless venture anyway. Even lying on his belly on the second floor balcony, his reach isn't long enough to return the fledgling to its nest. More importantly, there'd be no one there to nurse the little guy back to health. The mother and siblings are missing. Ray says it's possible that the rest of the birds were strong enough to fly, and this bird got left behind. Well, the issue is that I'm trying to figure out where mom is, and things all wet and cold. Um, I just take him. Back at the truck, Ray pulls out a towel. Wait, did you get it dry here? Will that improve its chances of seeing the morning? Yeah, well, like any other person, hypothermia. It's a living animal, so want to just dry it off real good. Ray hands me the bundled-up baby bird while he opens up a cabinet in the truck. I can feel his heartbeat. 
Poor little guy. Okay, buddy. Yeah, I know you're hungry. Give me a few. I'll see if I hopefully get some worms at the shelter to feed you. Ray rolls down his window and reaches for his cigarettes. I ask him if this kind of call upsets him. I'm not sure if he's disarmed by the personal nature of the question or irritated by my suggestion that he might be stress-smoking over a baby bird, but he shoots me a look. I'm just curious. I'm wondering. You know, it's, it's sad. It's a tiny baby bird. It might not see the morning. I mean, if I were a smoker, I'd, I'd want a cigarette too. Or is that just kind of after a call? Is it just like a normal thing? Um, you know, I hate to like say that you get desensitized. These type of calls don't affect me that much because I look at it more of it's a... It's like the cycle of life sort of kind of thing to me. That, you know, the only the strongest survive... I mean, I get probably more affected when I see animals like a domestic dog or cat that's been taken in by somebody who supposedly is going to treat it and love it like their pet and then neglect it or not care for it properly, that it runs loose out on the street, gets hit by a car. I'm not saying that wildlife's any less or that I'm less sympathetic to it, but at the same time, if this bird survives, great. We get to release it. At the same time, it's it's the cycle of life I have to look at. Not every animal that's born in the wild is going to survive. We arrive back at the shelter where Ray dives into work trying to help the little fledgling. Yeah, we're going to bring him inside and set him up on a heating pad and see if we can't find something to get him to eat. We walk past an unseen but very vocal group of dogs as we make our way to the exotics room, which holds a variety of animals. Hamsters, rabbits, fish. Uh, I don't see any snakes at the moment. Ray sets the fledgling up on a heating pad and rummages through a cabinet for some mealworms. There are bottles of food for fish, turtles, rabbits, and mice, but nothing for sparrows. Luckily, it's a rainy night. Ray grabs a shovel and flashlight, and we head back outside. We're looking for some worms for our bird so we can feed it. Are you looking for specific kinds of worms? Just earthworms. Inside, the fledgling refuses to open its beak. Ray selects one of the smallest worms with a pair of tweezers and pokes it into the little guy's mouth. Come on. Swallow. There you go. After a few failed attempts, including a resilient worm that keeps wriggling back out of the bird's beak, we have success. Ray places the fledgling back on the heating pad next to a bowl of dissected worms, in case the little guy wants a late-night snack. They named him Spring. The bird. Every animal that comes in, we have to give it a name. Unfortunately, Spring doesn't make it through the night. During the past five months, 16% of the birds cared for by Washington Humane Society were dead upon arrival, died in custody, or had to be humanely euthanized. 25% were returned to the wild, while the majority were transferred to a wildlife rehabilitator, usually an organization called City Wildlife. But some of the birds placed in rehabilitation don't survive either. A week after riding along with Ray, I jumped in the WHS truck with another animal control officer, Cindy Velasquez. Hi, I'm Lauren. Cindy. Hi, thanks for letting me ride along yeah, with you today. definitely. Cindy first came to WHS as a volunteer when she was just 16 years old. She says she never imagined she'd be doing this kind of work. I never expected for me to go above and beyond for an animal. Because I really do. If I hear that an animal is in distress, if I have to 
jump a fence, I will. If I have to go into a like a dark like a sewer like space, I will. Whatever it'll take to get the animal out, just the adrenaline just kicks in. Like nothing stands in my way to get to the animal. But she admits she can only do so much. Sometimes I just can't get there fast enough to like save them. I think that's probably the hardest part for me, just not being able to save everything. And I think it took me a while to understand that. We arrive at a house in Northwest where Cindy is responding to a report of multiple injured baby birds. So they said that it was on the side of the porch. On the porch, we see tiny featherless birds that can't be more than a few days old. The night before, the homeowner had turned on her fan, not realizing that a robin had built her nest on it. Two babies were ejected from the nest, and one died after hitting the cement. The second was lucky enough to land on a cushion and is lying there, barely breathing. Cindy drags over a chair and uses her phone's camera to peek into the nest. She's checking for more birds and finds one. Now, whether it's still alive or not, I don't know. Well, as long as it's in the nest. What's the best thing to do in this situation? Well, that one, I'm going to take it to probably City Wildlife. That might be the easiest place to take it to euthanize it because it doesn't look like it's in really good shape. That's better than just putting it back in the nest? Yeah. Because it must have hit in a really bad fall. Let me see if I can call. What do you think his chances are? Very slim. Resident Linda Clausen responds to Cindy's knock on the door. Hi. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm going to take it right now. See. Linda goes inside to fetch a plastic bag for Cindy. He probably would have had a chance if he would have been picked up last night. Because they have to keep warm, and he's so cold right now. So we'll take it to City Wildlife, see what they have to say. When we arrive at City Wildlife, Cindy tells wildlife biologist Abby Haymeyer what happened. This one was out all night, fell out of the nest that was um, on a fan, like outdoor fan. And then this one was found in the nest. It was just really cold, so I just brought them in together. Sadly, these baby robins, like Spring, the fledgling sparrow, don't make it. That can be a hard reality for people like Cindy to accept. But as she said earlier, she can't save everything. For the animal control officers at Washington Humane Society, taking the good with the bad is all part of the job. I'm Lauren Landau. We'll have more from Lauren's ride-alongs with the folks at the Washington Humane Society Saturday at noon on The Animal House, here from WAMU 88.5. Our next story in today's Land, Air, and Sea show is going to take us back in time. A few weeks from now, the district will mark the 150th anniversary of a Civil War skirmish known as the Battle of Fort Stevens. It's a battle that was fought right here in northwest D.C. President Abraham Lincoln himself was there to witness the fighting. But today, we're going to focus on a story that takes us back even further in time, 20 years earlier to 1844. That was the year when a major disaster took place on the Potomac River, a disaster that may have helped make the Civil War an inevitability. Tara Boyle brings us the story. In 1844, Washington, D.C. was a young city coming into its own. It's a city that's sort of rising out of the 
out of the swamp, out of the muck and mire, that they're elegant balls and they're elegant dances and dance halls and opera houses. This is Paul Dixon, a local historian and writer, and he wants to take us back to a particular day in 1844, February 28th. It was a bitter, cold, lousy day. Lousy weather, but a momentous day, because a new ship, a state-of-the-art vessel called the USS Princeton, was coming to town. The Princeton was a marvel of engineering, fast and strong and different from ships that came before it. They brought in John Erickson, the famous Swedish designer, to create a propeller, a screw propeller for the ship. Because before 1841, all warships of any power had side wheels. Side wheels were a pretty good way of propelling a ship forward. But Dixon says they were risky because a single cannonball could theoretically take them out and make your vessel a sitting duck during battle. The screw propeller was underwater and therefore less visible to enemies. It was a pretty neat invention, but it wasn't the thing that most excited Washingtonians. What everyone really wanted to see was on the ship's deck, the largest gun ever built, a gun known as the Peacemaker. It was 10 tons, this one gun, and it was 15-inch bore, which is a huge, huge piece of machinery. A huge piece of machinery that was about to be demonstrated for the Washington elite. It was a gala event. It was, they moored it off of Alexandria. And President Tyler and all of his cabinet, all the members of Congress, all the VIPs, Dolly Madison, who by this time is an elderly woman, they're all invited to do a demonstration. And so on February 28th, all these important guests board the Princeton. And the ship starts down the river toward Mount Vernon. And they fire the peacemaker. They fire it a second time. Again and again and again. And there's ice on the river. And the peacemaker can fire three miles. And they're blowing, uh, they're hitting icebergs, literally big ice floes. And watching them explode and disappear below the surface. It's unbelievably dramatic. Nothing like it had ever been seen in the U.S. before. They get to Mount Vernon. They start to turn around. And everybody's now below decks. There's dancing and a lavish spread of food. And somebody gets the idea, starts browbeating the craft of the ship to fire it one more time. The Secretary of War opposes it, but, he, but he's sort of overruled and he, he's actually afraid of what's going to happen. Several people, including Abel Parker Upshur, the Secretary of State, and Thomas Gilmer, the Secretary of the Navy, head upstairs. The Commander-in-Chief, President John Tyler, is not far behind. Tyler himself... Is, is on his way upstairs, up, up, up deck, to see this last explosion. Somebody yells out to him to propose one more toast before he goes. He turns around and do the, does the toast and holds a glass in his hand. And just at that very moment, there's a terrible sound from up above. There's a moment of silence followed by screaming. The peacemaker is made of cast iron, and it's unable to withstand the pressure of the multiple firings. It explodes, killing six people. Among them are Secretaries Upshur and Gilmer. The news is devastating for Washingtonians and for people farther afield. The bodies lay in the White House. The bodies lay in state of the dead. And the lines are unbelievable. People come from hundreds of miles around to show their, their grief. And it is, a, it is a terribly dark day for the city. Some people go down to the waterfront to look for mementos that might have washed ashore from the Princeton. To the city, it's the most amazing thing because it's the first real technology gone awry. In other words, there have been natural disasters before, but this is really man-made. The disaster is a foreign policy setback. 
The Princeton was designed to demonstrate U.S. power on a global stage, and the explosion on board does little to help that effort. It's also a setback to those hoping to calm the nation's internal tensions between North and South. Paul Dixon says the death of Secretary of State Abel Parker Upshur is a particular loss on that front. He was a man who was trying to do the best he could for the country, and he had a heroic cast about him. He was trying to bring together these forces. He was trying to prevent the country from going to war over slavery. So what did Upshur's death mean for the nation? Oscar Handlin, the famous historian, wrote this a book um, in 1955 called Chance or Destiny. And one of the points that, ha- that uh, Handlin made in his book was that Upshur, uh, who was killed, was Secretary of State, probably had the wherewithal to prevent the Civil War. It's one of those historical what-ifs, Dixon says, that can never really be answered. But he still finds this long-forgotten incident on the Potomac, an incident that briefly brought Washingtonians together in mourning, worth revisiting and remembering 170 years later. I'm Tara Boyle. Paul Dixon's latest book is Authorisms, Words Wrought by Writers. We've got more info about that and about the USS Princeton disaster on our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, we'll go up, up, and away with the high-flying performers at a Virginia air show. For me, wing walking is really like a dance. You really have to trust yourself and trust the equipment, the aircraft, and your pilot, most importantly. That and more is coming up here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson in for Rebecca Shear. Today we're bringing you stories that all have to do, in one way or another, with land, air, or sea. In a few minutes, we'll head up in the clouds with the wing walkers of a Virginia air show. But first, remember the old Star Trek theme, the one from the 1960s TV show? Space, a final frontier. Well, space may be the final frontier, but the truth is that we've still got plenty of pioneering left to do right here on Earth much of it underneath that vast expanse of blue we call the ocean. John Haynes is the program coordinator at the U.S. Geological Survey's Coastal and Marine Programs, and he and his colleagues are using something akin to ultrasound to get a better sense of what the ocean floor looks like. The method is not without controversies, and some environmental groups say the technique poses dangers to marine mammals. Haynes and I sat down at USGS headquarters in Reston, Virginia, to talk about the task of mapping the ocean along the U.S. coast. That's what we're doing. I think the interesting thing is why we're doing it. Uh, And it's basically to answer the question, how far offshore does the U.S. have sovereign right over the resources that are on and beneath the seabed? Um, It seems kind of amazing to me that we don't know that, um, but we don't. One of the reasons we're doing this project is we simply lack the knowledge to answer that simple question. Here are the rules for defining the limits of your continental shelf. You need certain data. You need certain analyses. We don't have those. We haven't been there. 
You often hear that the surface of the moon is understood better than the ocean floor. Is that true? And and why is that? I've heard that a lot. Um, I think there's some truth to it. Um, I think we haven't done the uniform systematic mapping that we've done from the moon. Uh, the ocean really, as an oceanographer, is, you know, it's it's our space program to learn as much as we can. Now, the ocean provides some challenges. It's covered with water. That's unfortunate. There's nothing we can do about that. So we don't have the same sort of satellite remote sensing tools. We have to go to sea, and it's big, and very slowly cover the ground as best we can. There is some controversy. Could you talk about that a little bit? I know you can't get into every issue because it's rapidly evolving. But what can you say about, you know, you guys trying to do the most you can to assuage critics and also just kind of move forward in the best way possible? Uh, well, that's a great question. And it's something we're always cognizant of. Um, the, the tools we use largely depend on the fact that sound, just as with an ultrasound in your doctor's office, will penetrate the sea and the seabed and allow us to image what's underneath. It's really the only tool we have to do that. Um, that said, we know that a variety of marine mammals are sensitive to sound. And so we take great care in how we design our studies and how we conduct our research. Um, everything we do in that regard is subject to uh, approval through our regulatory process to make sure we're compliant with all the laws and that what we do reflects the best available scientific knowledge. Uh, we've designed this particular study off the Atlantic margin really to be almost a minimalist approach, get the data that we require but no more and do what we can, work with the regulators to make sure that we understand and minimize any potential impacts that we might have. Do you really feel like, I mean, that this is one of the last unknowns out there in terms of the bottom of the ocean. There's a mystery behind the ocean. Do you feel that way too, or do you feel differently as somebody who gets to look at this data close up? Oh, no, I think we absolutely feel that. In fact, many of our people are motivated by that. Whether you're standing on a ship or standing on the shore, you see this surface, often angry and, and rough, but what goes on underneath is really is still largely a mystery. And I think it is a hallmark of oceanography, that when we get the tools and the resources to go places we haven't been, we invariably find something unexpected and new, and it just keeps you driving to go forward. That was John Haynes of the U.S. Geological Survey talking with me about the project of mapping undersea coastal zones. The project's first area of study was the Arctic, but this summer they'll begin mapping the Atlantic coastal zone, a task expected to take two years. We'll head from the ocean floor to the wild blue yonder now with a story about one of the nation's longest-running airshows. The Flying Circus in Bealton, Virginia, was started in 1970 by a group of guys who wanted to pay homage to the barnstorming era of the 1920s, when pilots would fly throughout the country selling airplane rides, usually operating from a farmer's field. For 44 years, the Flying Circus has been the place to watch pilots push themselves and their planes to the limit and to see wing walkers, people who perform stunts on the wings of airplanes. Megan Pauley visited the Flying Circus recently and met some of the people for whom high-flying thrill-seeking is a way of life. 
It's a beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon at the Flying Circus. Half a dozen brightly painted biplanes are lined up on an airfield and ready for takeoff. Out on the long, grassy airfield, Jana Lee McWhorter is standing in front of a microphone, singing the national anthem. In a little while, she'll also be wing walking. That's right, literally walking around on the wing of an airplane, dangling beneath the plane by a rope, and even strapped onto the top wing during a series of acrobatic loops. It's about three G's coming into the loop, and then you dive and go upside down, and as you go upside down, you lose gravity, you lose the G's. So you're actually weightless at that point. You can wave your hands, your feet, you can do whatever, but then just remember the back side of the loop is coming again where you're going to gain the three G's back again. Jana practiced her routine on the ground for more than a year before performing in the air. She's been wing walking for well over a decade, making her a veteran performer here. Another veteran? John King, who has been president of the circus for more than 20 years. It's just unheard of for something to last this long, have the dedication of the pilots and the, the stamina of the airplanes to keep, keep them flying. John says he was living in Chicago when his father, who helped start the flying circus, encouraged him and his wife, Nietzsche, to follow in his footsteps. Uh, he said, you got to come back. Something really neat's going on here. And uh, so we, we packed up and moved back to Washington. Nietzsche says their kids spent their summers at the circus learning how to ride bikes and even how to become wing walkers. And so Nietzsche knew exactly how to comfort the mother of the flying circus's newest wing walker, 22-year-old Rachel Holmes. Rachel wing-walked for the first time during a show two Sundays ago as her mother and Nietzsche stood among the crowd watching far below. She was nervous, and uh, I think she tried to talk her out of it, but there's not much we can do when they get to be that age and that's what they want to do. A love of flying has been in Rachel's blood for a long time. She's been helping out with the flying circus for years and has always wanted to wing-walk. When she's not taking classes or working, she's at the Flying Circus. I think it's just one of the most beautiful capabilities of humankind. For me, wing walking is really like a dance, you know, but you have to consider the plane and the pilot. So it's, it's that much more complex and beautiful because you really have to trust yourself and trust the equipment, the aircraft, and your pilot, most importantly. Rachel is talking with me in the Flying Circus's briefing room a room connected to the airplane hangars with just enough space for a long wooden bench to run down its center. Thirty minutes before this show, the whole Flying Circus family gathers to hear John King give last-minute updates and share other news. Mark Menefee has been at the Flying Circus for 15 years. His grandfather, Bill Menefee, helped the Flying Circus get its feet off the ground. Bill was killed in a plane accident at Shannon Airport in Fredericksburg in 1976, and Mark never met him. But he says he feels like he does know his grandfather because of all of the stories he's heard and the photos he's seen preserved lining the walls of the briefing room. There's my grandfather right there. Oh. And that's his Sopwith pup there that he flew in the air show. And, um... He looks pretty dapper. He's got that jacket and the goggles. And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they really, uh... They really used to dress up real nicely back then, huh? Yeah, I know, the goggles and everything. Yeah, it's beautiful. Plans are in the works to soon begin building brand new hangars, 
a briefing room, as well as a museum to display artifacts from the circus's early days. He wasn't even born yet when we were here. Melissa Chamberlain is one of the people who remembers those early days. She's from New Cumberland, West Virginia, and came to the Flying Circus 22 years ago. On Sunday, she brought her son along to see the show and take an open cockpit ride. Actually, the performances were even better this time than they were 22 years ago. I really was impressed. I really was. It's awesome. I'd do it again and again just to see the planes do what they do. I think it's beautiful. And it just amazes me that they can do what they do. In the briefing room of the Flying Circus, there's a sign that says, The sky is not a limit. And with that motto in mind, I gather up the courage to take a ride in an open cockpit plane after the show ends and the crowd has left. From the skies of Virginia, with a view overlooking the Blue Ridge Mountains and a stunning patchwork landscape, I'm Megan Pauley. You can see photos of Megan's experience at the Flying Circus on our website, metroconnection.org. Time now for our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit the Plains, Virginia, and Oyster Harbor, Maryland. My name is Naomi Perry. I live in Oyster Harbor, Maryland, near Annapolis, Maryland, on the Chesapeake Bay. Oyster Harbor was founded around 1947. William Sluzmeyer was the one who sold this property to blacks originally. There were five original houses and my house was one of the five sold around 1947. I can look out at the water and of course I love crabbing and I love being on the beach. I love being up early in the morning to see the sunrise. And it's just a beautiful place to come to and relax. We have a beach opening ceremony every year around the first part of June. There's also something called the sock burning. But you bring your old socks and you burn those socks and you bring new socks. And they are delivered to families who are in need. I'm will never leave Oyster Harbor. I will be here forever, and I hope that my friends, I mean my family, will carry on when I have gone on to be with the Lord. My name is John B. Adams, Jr., known as Jay. I live in the Plains, Virginia. The Plains, Virginia is about 45 minutes west of Washington, um, directly off Route 66 uh, between Haymarket and Marshall, and uh, is between the towns of Middleburg and Warrenton. 
The main industry here used to be farming. It is countryside after all, and I guess you could still say it's farming. The, the type of farming has changed through the years, however. In the early 20s, uh, most of it was still recovering, in a sense, from the war, and they basically would, would either have cattle, sheep, uh, raise corn, those kinds of things, dairy. But through the years, it is, if you will, become a little more gentrified, as I have to be in Washington and Richmond and Fredericksburg and different places from time to time, it's always serene to come back to an open area that is uh, not only beautiful but uh, visually but also calming. We heard from Jay Adams in the Plains and Naomi Perry in Oyster Harbor. And if you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or you can send us a tweet our handle is at WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Megan Pauly. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. And today we say a hearty congratulations to Metro Connection host Rebecca Shear as she marries her fiancé, Eric Shimalonis. Mazel tov, Rebecca and Eric. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for more information on its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be heading back in time with favorite stories about our region's history. We'll meet the owners of a ferry service that's been chugging along for more than 300 years. We'll find out about D.C.'s nearly forgotten beer-brewing traditions, and we'll talk with the team working to preserve an old jail in Virginia. It's much better than the 1740s or 1760s jails. Folks could regularly get out of those. I'm Jonathan Wilson, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. (laughs) 